number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show, where interesting, intriguing, and exciting people engage in unscripted exchanges of ideas, stories, and perspectives. It's not an interview. It's a powerful conversation. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show, where I get the pleasure of being able to have conversations with amazing individuals from around the world who share their insights on business, on the world, on love, on relationships, on fashion, whatever it happens to be that their level of expertise is, we get to have powerful conversations that are meant to influence your life in a positive and inspiring way. Today, I have an individual who is not only someone that I would imagine everybody wants to have on their podcast, but I'm also lucky enough to call my friend. Uh, Her name is Zaya Tong, and she is an award-winning broadcaster who anchored Daily Planet, Discovery Channel's flagship science program, until its final season in 2018. And she also hosted the CBC's Emmy-nominated series Zed, PBS's national primetime series, Wired Science, and worked as a correspondent for Nova Science Now alongside Neil deGrasse Tyson on PBS. And if that's not enough folks she also serves as the vice chair of wwf canada and like i said above and beyond all these accomplishments she's most proud of calling herself my friend <laughs> ladies and gentlemen <laughs> zaya tong welcome to the show thank you so much for having me here today it's a joy to chat with you my pleasure to have you on the show my goodness i know i've been trying to get you on the show for a while and you uh, are someone who is in popular demand right now because of a book that you just recently had published that we're not going to get into now but folks uh, later on in the show i'm going to be speaking to you about a book called the reality bubble and it is a show or it is a show it is a book that um has had critical acclaim and it's now being printed around the world and it has become no joke i'm not just saying this because i is my friend one of my favorite books who i have literally oh it's so great i've i've pushed it out to so many people and i'm not kidding you last yesterday i was on a what i call my three o'clock walk and talk uh and i was talking to my friend anna and i told her at the end of the call that she had to go to amazon and buy your book because i said you are gonna love this book so i uh i'm making sure everyone knows about it and folks you're gonna want to hear all about it and the things that uh, zaya talks about in that book a little bit later in the show but we do have to at least call out the elephant in the room that we are doing this podcast uh right here, and I don't know if it's smack middle or smack at the beginning or somewhere uh, during the COVID-19 crisis. And so there is no way that I cannot have uh, someone like Zaya on this podcast and not get her take on things. So we're going to talk about that straight away because I am curious to know how it's affecting your life and how it's affecting your industry. And then we'll move into some other things. So Zaya, yes. <laughs> I, 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 what the hell are you thinking? Is this not crazy or what? Like, I mean, how is it, how, how has it affected you most like on, on a personal level? Well, I think that, um, you know, obviously mobility is probably the biggest thing, right? Every one of us is facing something very similar. So I don't feel particularly different in the sense that I'm suddenly, um, isolated in my home. And, you know, obviously here in Canada, springtime is just starting to emerge and I'm just starting to notice these odd little things. Like I'm, I'm hearing birds so clearly now. And, uh, I know when I first started noticing what was happening in COVID in China, there were birds everywhere, everywhere you could hear birds, recordings of birds. And, and it was incredible, right? Because you, you can hear the nature, not only see it sometimes on the internet returning, um, the flowers are blooming. So the outside world is unsettling for me. I'm finding it both um, really eerily oppressive 
and really beautiful and peaceful at the same time. So really kind of navigating the emotion of knowing that I'm okay. I'm so fortunate as your listeners are, I'm sure, just so, so, so fortunate to have a home, to have a bed, to have food, to be safe. Um, but I, I, I feel very mixed emotions because I'm so aware of the staggering death tolls that are taking place and the frontline workers that are out there and the people who are, you know, responsible for our food and our waste and, and all the, what we're now considering finally essential services um, that allow us to stay inside of our home, stay inside of our habitat bubbles, as it were. Mm -hmm. So I'm feeling um, overwhelmed and at the same time, this is the separate thing, right? Is we're at this we're at this pivotal pivotal moment in history. Um, Gramsci referred to it as the interregnum in a sense. An interregnum is a sort of in between states. Mm -hmm. And you know, the old world is dying, and a new world has yet to be born. And we're in this place right now where we kind of get to decide what happens when we emerge. You know, this is like a, a bizarre chrysalis that we've been forced into by a virus of all things, something invisible to the naked eye. And yet all of humanity is shaken up and we have to re-envision the way we're going to live once this is over. Yeah. So, um, so a lot to contend with. So when people say, how are you? I'm like, wow, <laughs> that's a big question. It was so easier to, uh, to answer before. When you say that, you know, referring to the old world is dying, what do you think uh, when you look backwards a month, two months ago, uh, what is dying the most? Well, I think what we kind of assumed was business as usual, right? The economy is certainly um, shaken up when we look at things like, you know, the other day I saw an airplane pass by and I was shocked at my own response to seeing an airplane that I was so shocked to see an airplane. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, whereas that's not something I would have even thought you know, a second about in the past. Right. Um, so all those things, like all, all that sense of community, um, restaurants, for example, that was very, very normal. We live in a city like Toronto that is known to have restaurants absolutely everywhere. It's a cultural hub. And all of, uh, all of these big cities, people move to these cities because they're places where you can gather, where you can gather for concerts, where you can gather for food, where you can gather for talks. And none of that looks to be the same in the next couple of years. I mean, it, you know, from what, what, you know, people are saying we might not have rock music concerts till 2021. And, um, you know, an article came out in the Globe and Mail recently saying one in 10 restaurants has already closed. And if this continues for longer, it could go, it could be as high as 50 to 75% of restaurants gone. I mean, that's a, a, a real shakeup of the way in which we've lived our ordinary lives. And, and for now, for now, that's gone. Yeah, it's funny. I I know that in uh, over the years as a professional speaker, uh, you and I, of course, both being people who make a living uh, on stage, we have the luxury of being able to visit uh, places around uh, the world and mainly North America. That otherwise, if we didn't have a gig there, we probably wouldn't show up to that small town in, let's say, the middle of Iowa. And what I've loved about that is sometimes I'll get out of the airport and I jump into my rental and I'll be driving to that place that's two hours away. And it takes me through some small town in the United States um, or even in Canada, but more often in the U.S. And I was driving through that while driving through that town, it actually is a ghost town where it was once thriving because of some particular industry. And now uh, the population of, let's say, 1,000 has abandoned it. And you see stores that are all shuttered and you see houses that are abandoned. You see things that are overgrown. And it feels very very almost zombie-like, very apocalyptic. 
And just the other day, I started thinking, gosh, I live in the uh, in, in a place called Greektown, for those who are listening, in, in the city of Toronto. And that's a, a, a thriving hub in the city and one that, as you walk down a street called Danforth, there are nothing but, you know, shops and, and restaurants. And I just started thinking, gosh, like I'd already seen a couple that I wouldn't have even expected uh, would have closed down that quickly. And they already are uh, shuttered down. And I started thinking, God, this could end up looking like some of those small towns that I've driven through in the United States. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly does now when you go out and it looks like that 28 Days Later movie, doesn't it? You yeah. know, it does look like a zombie movie with no real zombies. Yeah. And, you know, I think for the longest time, we've all heard that people were one paycheck away from from sometimes financial ruin. And I think that this has shown us that we were one, mm. you know, one paycheck away for many people, many businesses, especially, you know, with tremendous rents that need to be paid. Um yeah, it, it really shows how fragile the system always was. And, and who, really, it's, who do you, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but who, who do you hold responsible for that? Is it the individual who perhaps wasn't um, saving for a rainy day? Or do you blame the system for putting people into a place where we are given so much in the way of, of debt and uh, mortgages and, and the things that kind of almost shackle us to the system who do you hold responsible for us being now um not strong enough to be able to handle this pandemic from at least a financial perspective yeah i think it's you know a lot of this is this sort of myth of neoliberal wealth that we've had for some period of time that has actually shackled so many of us right and the fact that the debt load is what actually creates money in essence so people have been in debt for a long period of time. And really, when you're looking at it right now, who's making money? The insurance companies are making money. The billions, billionaires are making money and the banks are making money. Mm -hmm. The banks are doing fine. They're not actually, you know, they're, they're making actually more money through deferring things like mortgages. So it's, um, it's, it's really, you can see how the system is kind of rigged right now. And that's one of the things that I think is interesting. Things that were not so apparent in the past are becoming a lot clearer and a lot more evident to people right now. Um, this, this virus is not treating people equally. It's treating people very differently. If you're very poor, um, your, your health risks are much higher. And that's the same if you are of an ethnic minority. Um, you know, so, I mean, we're, we're definitely seeing a difference in, in the way this is played out. And that is because the quote-unquote system that we've developed, the economic system, the sort of illusory bubble that we're believing in is 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 false in many ways. Yeah. Or it or it's you know maybe false isn't even necessarily the right word. It's it's true that it is rigged um, to benefit some and not others. It's funny because I um, found myself in a situation where so uh, we own uh, the house that we live in and, and the house actually next door and the house next door is a rental property that is a duplex. Now the way it works in Toronto is that you are not allowed to actually own two houses next to each other under the same name. That's a whole other story. It's a whole other podcast. But basically uh, the reality was is that I had to purchase the house next door by incorporating a new numbered company. So I did that a few years ago, bought the house, had renters in there, never thought twice about it. All of a sudden though, the mortgage on that place has come for renewal. And I just went back to my broker and I said, okay, let's just, let's renew it. Let's, let's take it to one of the A lenders or the B lenders, whoever it might be. Let's get a good rate. And he said, dude, he goes, we're in trouble. I'm like, what do you mean? He said, well, because um, now all of a sudden the, the lenders are all freaked out about small business. And they don't want to um, to give mortgages out to people who are small businesses. And if they, well, they, they do, but it's at now at a higher interest rate. 
And it's so interesting, like when you think about equality, which is like we know that uh, I believe the statistics are something like 40% of the Canadian economy depends on small business. And I think I read something like up to 70% of all employment comes through small to medium-sized business. And yet the banks don't even support the small and medium-sized businesses during times like these. If there was ever a time that they needed to kind of go out there and really help out, it's now. And yet what they're doing is they're saying, you know what, yeah, we'll help you, but now at a much higher interest rate. So everything will work out on, on our end, but it will be at a higher interest rate. And it's like, you just think, damn you. Like, why is the system is so, like you said, it's so rigged that uh, we almost lose our humanity during these kinds of periods. Well, it's tricky, right? I don't know if you saw, but there was um, somebody sent out an internet meme, which I think is really true, which is, you know, the, the four class systems of like COVID, which is you have your billionaires, you have your Zoom users, right? And then you have your essential service workers, and then you have the unemployed. Right. And that is exactly the four categories of people that we have right now. Interesting. And I think it's going to shake up a lot of stuff because, I mean, you think of Airbnb. There were a lot of people that wanted to supplement their income by by having Airbnb, by being able to rent out a space. And obviously, um, most of those people or a lot of those people, let's say, um, really required that income to pay their mortgages. Like what's going to happen to those people now when people aren't staying in Airbnbs? Well, one one solution is to open it up, as somebody suggested online as well, to renters again, right? Mm -hmm. So that, you know, the rental market can begin to thrive again and uh, so that people can afford their homes. Everything has been so hyperinflated. You know, I mean, I, I'm not the only one. Everybody would agree that the fact that a home, uh, you know, a median priced home in Toronto is a million dollars is absolute and utter bullshit, <laughs> yeah. you know? So there's aspects of this that, that need to be corrected. Right, right. So what is then one conversation within this crisis? And I think you did touch on it a little bit when you're sp speaking about how it's the marginalized that uh, perhaps are not being thought about during this time. Um, but besides that, what is a, a conversation that perhaps you're having amongst friends or with other individuals that share your viewpoint on the world that is not being had? around this pandemic? I mean, because we get onto the phone, we talk to our friends, and every one of us starts off the conversation the same way you and I did today. Like, oh my God, crazy. What a nuts period of time that we're in. But eventually, um, the conversation I find ends up repeating itself compared to a lot of the conversations around this subject with other people. So within that, what's the conversation do you think that we as human beings should be having that's not being either had at all or not being had enough with respect to this pandemic? Well, I think um, I'd reference an article that my friend Astra wrote in The Guardian today, and that is the role that um, the human consumption of animal meat has to do with diseases. Um, mm -hmm. She wrote a great article about it, and it's something that's, you know, we, you know, she talked about it really as the science that we don't want to ignore, we want to ignore, right? Like, it's not okay to ignore climate science, but when you look at other aspects of uh, human consumption of meat, that's where a lot of our problems come from. That's where a lot of diseases come from, right? Whether right. it's from the factory farm aspect of it, of avian flu, whether it's the aspect of it where really one of the things that keeps me up at night is, you know, antibiotic resistance, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, God, can you imagine if we didn't have antibiotics? Right. I mean, that's something that we rely on. And, you know, we're starting to see antibiotic resistance um, already in French hospitals. Mm -hmm. And that's because, of course, all the, you know, all the all the stuff we're pumping into our animals and factory farms. On, on another level, this extends also to to the wildlife and animals that we're eating and, and, and you know, basically reaching into their environments and, um, you know, 
breaking into the wild, right? Because our human habitat bubbles are so big and so dominant. And we, we so don't see ourselves as a part of this bigger, bigger, you know, bigger globe of life, you know, 8.7 million other species. We're just one animal among them, but we've been dominating the space for a very long time. And, um, a large part of the problem that we face when it comes to diseases has to do with the human consumption of meat. And there's an ability for us to shift out of that now, not only because, of course, right now we're seeing a lot of the people who are working in, in places like Cargill or, or wherever, these meat processing plants, a lot of the people are getting COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, those, those plants are shutting down. So, you know, just by virtue of that, a lot of people will be eating less meat because there will be less meat available in that sense. But really, in terms of climate change, in terms of agriculture, in terms of antibiotic resistance, in terms of, you know, getting rid of, you know, potential sources for pandemics, eating meat is a really, really big issue that nobody wants to ever talk about. You know? <laughs> it's so funny, People isn't it? People like... just want to just chomp on a burger and get on with it. But I mean, if you really want to get down to the nuts and bolts of like one of the key things that that is creating a lot of problems for humanity, that is it. It's so funny when uh, you talk about the idea of either lessening your meat consumption or eradicating your meat consumption. Whenever I've talked about this with individuals, um, you would think that I'm asking them to chop their bloody arm off. And mm. I and I say this as a meat eater, um, you know, somebody who is concerned about the climate. Uh, I had to make what I felt was a very painful decision to stop eating um, beef uh, a few years ago because I, I really could not call myself somebody who uh, is concerned about the climate emergency and, and still be eating hamburgers. I knew that. And right. um, so uh, I said goodbye to beef. And, and I think maybe, you know, if I'm at someone's barbecue, I'll, I'll have a hamburger and, and not ask them to make me a salad. But for the most part, I don't eat beef because of that reason. And yet when I tell people that, uh, if it gets brought up in conversation, it's amazing just how psychologically people are tied to that uh, way of living. And and it, and it just surprises me just how hard this makes it. And, and actually, that brings me to a question I have for you. Right? Would, so I know that you and I do both uh, share the same concern around climate um, change and and, and the climate emergency that we're facing on planet Earth. And now we're hearing all these stories about how, you know, the people in India can see the Himalayas for the first time and people in Los Angeles can see the city and whatever. You're hearing about dolphins swimming close to, I believe, Venice or wherever it was recently. Um, Do you think this pandemic gives us a fighting chance to solve the global warming crisis or do you think it'll be just, you know, a small blip and we'll go back to the same stuff that we're doing to rape planet earth when this is all over oh god going back to planet earth rape is never a good idea obviously (laughs) no i'm saying do you Um, think that we would just will as a species i think that unless we're strategic about it then you know we need new we're we're a species that relies on our ideas in order to change our environment we always have been that's what separates us from the other animals really right we Mm -hmm. can shape the world that we live in and, you know, just, just to clarify one little myth, though, is that there, there were no dolphins in, in, um, in Venice. That, that was, uh, that, okay. was one, that was a bit of a photoshoppy thing that people oh, put out it? there. Okay. Yeah. So it felt, despite it the felt fact weird. That, yeah. But I mean, for, in terms of, uh, in terms of say the skies in, uh, the skies in Los Angeles though. Yeah. That stuff is, that stuff is true. But when you look at what happened in terms of the lessening of pollution or the lessening, yeah, essentially the lessening of pollution in China, I write about that in my book, um, there was a story in there about how in 2014, APEC was going on, which is the Asia Pacific Economic Forum, right, uh, convention. 
and you know dignitaries from around the world come to China, but China at the time had these choking, choking black gray skies. So the Chinese government came up with this huge initiative, and it was a big bold plan. They wanted to change the color of the skies, so they basically hired close to half a million people. They they shut down the factories for two weeks. Um, they took 11 million cars off the road, and bingo, they had blue skies. It was incredible. People were totally marveling at the 2014 APEC blue. They called it APEC blue. <laughs> the next year, they had military blue skies, right? Because the, the potential to create blue skies was there. The problem is, right afterwards, there was what was known as a retaliatory spike. And that was when pollution you know, spiked, went far, 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 far up, because the minute industries and factories were able to get back to work, they did make it spike. Now, I'm not sure that, you know, I think that when we come out of this, things are going to be quite different. Mm -hmm. I mean, for one, it's important to note that like the carbon dioxide, it's still going up, right? I mean, it, it, it's not like that's going down. It's coming out of our buildings and still out of our tail tailpipes, right? It doesn't mean that it's actually going down. It means that we're just pumping less of it out there. Mm -hmm. But this is a key moment where we have um, we have the ability now and all of us are, are faced with ourselves and our society is facing itself and, it, and it's going, what are we going to do? What kind of new jobs, what kind of new world are we going to live in? And this is a ripe opportunity for us to go, hey, we can do things differently. You know, people are very nimble and creative. If there's anything that I've been inspired by is like, looking on the internet and just seeing the wild, crazy, sometimes hilarious, very often brilliant ideas that people have in terms of solutions for many different things, right? Are, so, is there any part of you that's pissed off, though, as somebody who I know has put in so much effort to try and educate the world and to get people to change um, the, the in, in the way that they are influencing and, and, and contributing to global warming? Um, is there any part of you that's pissed off in the sense that you see how quickly we could all mobilize to do something about this pandemic. And yet, what many would argue is a bigger threat to society and to the world, uh, we don't mobilize ourselves, we do nothing about it. Or, or are you, do you have more hope? I have certainly more hope now, because I think that where we all thought, there's no way, there's no way you could get like, you know, 7.7 .7 billion primates to agree on anything. <laughs> no, we totally did. And we did it quickly. I mean, think about how different the world is a month ago. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Now it's early April, but I mean, think back to February. You know, that was just like a month and a bit ago, like five weeks ago, we were living in a completely different world. And we changed our behaviors, our habits remarkably quickly. And so for me, that's an astonishing thing. Uh, that we're capable of that means that, you know, in terms of the climate fight, which is going to be a much bigger threat for all of us, let's face it. I mean, this COVID is nothing, really like a blip in the pan compared to what the devastation that climate change will begin to wreak on our food systems and our energy systems, everything, right? Mm -hmm. Our basic habitats. So now that we know we can do this, in a sense, we're slightly better off, right? Like, I feel like we could, there's there's a rallying cry that's available. And I think people are starting to think really deeply about this stuff. And I think the people who move ahead right now, like, I mean, in terms of all those oil stocks, for example, people who have invested in oil, obviously, are not doing very well. But people who invested in, um, in green renewable energy stocks did a lot better. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's sort of a bit of a no brainer that now is a good moment to think about really 
clever transitioning, right? So let's touch on what you just said uh, a few moments ago about kind of this being essentially a dress rehearsal for the global warming crisis that's just around the corner. And I know you've even said things that we've got, I think I saw you say something along the lines of that we have 10, 10 years to to do something about this. And other people say it's 20. What, who cares? It's a very short period of time. And But obviously the one big difference is that with global warming is that uh, – proverbial kind of frog in the boiling water scenario right where uh the frog doesn't jump out or doesn't um by the time it wants to jump out of the water it's too late because the water was warming up slowly and if it was boiling it would have jumped out immediately um <laughs> i think that i've just said that in the most backward way that anyone's ever heard <laughs> but but <laughs> the listeners get the point um so but but it's it's because something came on so rapidly that we changed so rapidly do you still think, though, and I, and I hate to be the pessimist here, but there's a part of me that's just like, I don't know, there's a curmudgeon in me that says, I, I, I just feel like by the time that we start seeing the really big effects of global warming, where it's a daily thing and not just us going, oh, wow, isn't it such a nice day in the middle of February when it should be snowing, I just feel like it's going to be too late. But, but you think that, that this will be an impetus behind us changing, huh? Well, I think, you know, first to clarify in terms of the 10 years, 20 years, um, we basically have uh, 8.5 years left if we want to reduce carbon emissions to a certain uh, year's level that that will get us to 1.5, right? Keep us at 1.5. So it's a quite a specific scientific thing that we're talking about um, because the world doesn't end in 10 years or 8.5 years. It continues, but but the risks become a lot higher, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that we won't have coral reefs, for example, or that the, the fires will get worse or that the drought, droughts will get worse. That That's all incrementally going to start to increase. So the fact that we are actually seeing rapid shifts and changes, um, I think should be something that we're, we're proud of. I think that that shows us that we know how to mobilize. And if we use our time well, um, we can make those big shifts. Like I'm seeing this really as a Scooby-Doo ending, right? Like we have a moment right now to really change um, the direction of history, Mm-hmm. So that we don't have to go down this bleak route. I mean, I'm tired of the bleak route. I'm sure everybody is. After 2020, when we woke up to like blood red skies and like a billion incinerated animals. And you know, what I mean, we're, we're sick of it. All of us are like yeah. already. I want some, we all want some utopia. We all want some happiness. We all want some, you know, a good place for our kids to grow up. And the only way that that's going to happen is if we go, you know what, enough of this, let's use this moment that we have right now and actually shift our thinking and shift our behavior well and that's what i hope for the most and not only our shifting behavior towards things like global warming but just really across the board everything to the way that we treat each other or to the amount that we appreciate just that human interactions that we used to have before this or the way in which that we look at our work Uh, i've always been amazed that uh, a person can go to a nine-to-five job that they really don't like and just stick it out day after day for 40 years. Uh, I recognize that people go through certain periods of their lives where they just have no choice but to put food on the table. And I get that during that period, we have no choice. But to not be striving to get into something different, uh, to not get into a life that is um, 
that, that, that doesn't cause you to have that, that, that the ball and chain, as we were saying earlier. And I, I know it's not easy. And I know that the system enslaves so many individuals. And I know it's easy for me to sit here up on my perch where I've had the luxury of being able to uh, make a good living over the many years that I've been doing this job. But I still feel like that there are so many individuals that I have met who do have the same luxuries that that we have. And it amazes me how much they just swallow a lifestyle that is not conducive to, to happiness, to, to fulfillment. And I do hope that this shakes us up. Well, I think that, you know, there was a book that came out a little while ago based on an article called Bullshit Jobs, right? Mm -hmm. And it talked about how many people really, those people who are on Zoom right now, right, the Zoom demographic, as opposed to the billionaires and the essential services and the unemployed, many of them have jobs that are just absolutely like paper pushing. And, and the, these people who were basically um, sort of surveyed for this are the first to say that they have bullshit jobs, right? <laughs> right. They're not really necessary to the world or, you know, uh, a lot of it is, you know, whatever kind of marketing speak or whatever. And, you know, when you even think about marketing as an example, and this is not to offend anybody, but it's like, Marketing is telling us to buy, 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 obsessively buy stuff, right? It markets to children, turns them into these hyper consumers. And then, of course, we have this, it creates this, fuels the cycle, right, for incessant greed and need and envy and like trying to have stuff that you're going to just throw away in two minutes. And that's really fundamentally the problem that we face today, right, as a hyper consumerist world that's running out of its resources. Well, what if all these marketers use their brilliance and their brain power and, you know, their advertising prowess to shape our mental ways of thinking. And we started treating that in a different way, right? With more wisdom um, so that human beings start valuing different things, start valuing community, start valuing quality so that we're not throwing things out all the time. Like we have the ability now to transform those bullshit jobs into really important, um, mindful and creative and essential jobs. And I, I hope that that's, that's an opportunity that, that we have. And I think the smart people will get on that. The smart people will realize that something has changed. And uh, to set themselves apart, they're going to have to start doing things differently. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, you reminded me of a, a comedian I once saw. I can't remember his name. I know that he was an older comedian who uh, unfortunately died in his 30s. But um, he was just coming up and, and becoming quite popular. It's just driving me crazy. I can't think of his name right now. But he died because of uh, he had cancer. But... He was standing in front of an audience, a big audience, and uh, there's a great video where he says to the audience, anybody here uh, work in marketing and advertising? And you get a certain percentage of the audience like, woo yeah. And he goes, yeah, you people should fucking kill yourselves. Oh, dear. <laughs> was it Stephen Wright? No, but it's it's he's he's similar to him. Yeah, um, yeah. But okay. uh, yeah, and so then, and then everyone laughs, and he says, what are you laughing at? I wasn't kidding. And then oh, anyway, dear. he just goes yeah. on and on and on. And, and then he's like, yeah, look at that. He's going after that, uh, that uh, reverse psychology dollar. Yeah, a lot of research says there's a lot of money in that. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. it, it is something, though. You're right, like that we have to be okay as we go through this period in time of calling out the areas in which we made mistakes and where we say, okay, you know what? Uh, as human beings, we have not risen to the challenge. We have not reached our potential, and that is okay. Instead of us sitting here and and trying to save face in the in the in the midst of all of this, uh, let's just be okay with saying, "Hey, maybe we didn't get it right." Like I've always found it su surprising that you don't find yourself in a conversation with someone where an individual says, "You know what? Like 
I'm just going to throw this out there. You know, a bunch of friends are out for drinks after work. Um, so the whole 925 thing, like, we're sure we got that right, right? Like, it is nine to five. Like, are we like are we positive? Like, it was, and it should be five days a week. It shouldn't be four. Like, I just find it so amazing how people have just subscribed to that. And so I, I do hope that individuals in the midst of all this might step back and go, yeah, you know what? Maybe, maybe we don't actually need to do five days a week. Well, we we might not, right? I mean, that's the thing. Like, the French were already working what thirty thirty five hours a week. Mm-hmm. The Japanese decided, you know, so in Microsoft in Japan, they were like, people are more efficient with a four day work week. Mm-hmm. Places like the David Suzuki Foundation in Canada have a four day work week, and I think people are suggesting that now here a lot a lot of people will start working from home because for the first time we've realized well you can work from home. Yeah. And I was listening to somebody talk about that recently and just saying, you know, even if people still stay home two days a week and work in an office three days a week, that changes the amount of people commuting, Mm -hmm. that changes traffic patterns, that that vastly reduces carbon emissions because, you know, just two days a week is more than any sort of carbon tax that you're going to put on people. Mm -hmm. So massive changes can take place because of these these ideas, you know. And um, yeah, even in terms of yeah. Anyway, that yeah, it's just it, it, I just think that we're just at this really, really incredible moment where where a lot can change. And yeah, I, I don't know. I was uh, talking to somebody recently that I thought was quite interesting when they said that this actually might be the game changer that causes the housing uh, boom in big cities to uh, to change, and so that the houses aren't being sold at these astronomical prices because all of a sudden a person starts thinking if the if the company at the end of this says no, you know what, we're actually okay with you not coming back to work. Well, then the individual thinks, well, then I don't have to live in the city. That means I can work from home anywhere. And so I am going to live my dream of living in the country on a farm. As long as I've got a good Wi-Fi connection, I'm good to go. And then if you have a certain, I wouldn't call it mass exodus, but a certain number of people, if it's big enough that's leaving the city, well, then we don't have the same demand on houses. And thus it brings those prices down to a more affordable rate for people who do want to live in the city. I mean, the jury's still out on that, but... Um, I guess we'll have to see. So, so, anyways, listen. Let's let's switch gears for a second because I I, I want to make sure we get some time to talk about your book. And I think it's. Saying, I feel like we have been talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. a little bit, anyway. It's true. And people, when they when they read your book, they'll know just how much we actually have been. Um, so let me let me take a stab at this. Okay, I'm going to try to describe your book in my own terms as an individual who has read it. Um, so it's called the reality bubble, folks, and it basically is just that. It's like we live in this bubble where we think it is reality when, in fact, it's nothing close to what's really happening. And so whether it is the way that we consume energy, whether it is you know, how big we are in the grand scheme of this thing called outer space um, or even just the way that we see uh, size and density and um, the solid state of, of nature, uh, it really is just a great big illusion. And in Zaya's book, she really just peels the layers of that onion and makes us see what's really going on. Um, and it's startling, it's inspiring, it's scary, uh, and it definitely makes you look at the world through new eyes. So that's how I describe your book. How do you describe your book? 
Let me see if you're right. <laughs> well, I think, you know, when you're writing a book, just like when you're writing a thesis, people want you to be able to explain what it is in a nutshell. And my nutshell explanation of my book is it's kind of like a cross between Cosmos, the TV series Cosmos and The Matrix. Right. So like in the sense that Cosmos kind of awakens you to, you know, the scale and the awe and the wonder through science of looking through a scientific lens and seeing the world in a different way. The Matrix also peeled back the layers of the system that we live in and kind of revealed that there was this other kind of secret world that we couldn't see and the secret world kind of controlled all of our behavior. And if we could kind of blend those two, use the scientific lens in order to see the secret world, what would it reveal to us? And um, I think it's both wondrous and horrifying. <laughs> I hope that's a good synopsis. What, what have you been hearing more, more wondrous or more horrifying? Both, both. Yeah. I think that... Well, yeah, I mean, you you know, writing the book, I definitely needed to kind of have both in there, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, I didn't want to write a, a wagging a finger kind of book that would bore the crap out of me. And so I think that one of the nicest compliments that I've had is that the book is quite funny in certain ways, you know, like yeah. it, it's quirky. And it kind of shows you a world that you're just not aware of, right? Like everything from the fact that, you know, dung beetles can see the Milky Way and they navigate through that space to, <laughs> you know, to to the fact that, you know, people can die of overworked death in Japan. Like, you mm -hmm. know, it's it's a full spectrum of looking at the world that we live in. And I'm constantly curious, as you know, and constantly in a state of marvel and awe at the world that surrounds us. So I, I wanted to include as much of that as possible, um, but then also really include, you know, sort of the shakier aspects of it. What uh, was it that made you knew you needed to write this book? I think you don't write a book, or I. Uh, this is my perception, is you don't write a book unless you have to write the book. Like, I had to write this book. Right. I knew that, you know, people always say, write the book that you want to see on the shelf, you know, and I, um, and I don't mean to sound, I don't know how to say this in a way, but like, basically, whenever I go into bookshops, secondhand bookshops, or, or new bookshops, I'm always like, can you, you know, I go to the bookshop seller, can you share with me the most profound book on your, on your bookshelf or in your, in your store? Hmm. I love the responses that I get there, because often that fills my own library. But I really wanted a book that was going to you know, like a paradigm shifting book, right? Like the kind of book that you're like, click, click, and you you see the world in a different way. Like I love epiphanies mm -hmm. and I love having epiphanies and I love sharing epiphanies. And so really that's what I was hoping for in this book. And And as I started to see the world in a different way based on interviewing so many scientists and thinkers over the years, I started realizing that, you know, there are ways of seeing that the ordinary person can't see you know, because we, our eyes are like, you know, basically the same eyes that our Neolithic ancestors have had, right? So tens of thousands of years, we've been seeing the same way. Oh, a little bit of traffic out there. That's okay. <laughs> she's, a, she's a city gal. I am. Um, yeah, but you know, I mean, it's shocking to even hear a car, to be honest, That's right? That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, so I, I wanted to kind of frame it in, in that way that people could be surprised by what they were learning. Um, yeah. So now, what would you say then as you were writing the book? Because I've obviously I've written a couple of books myself and, and I uh, have found that I have had a love-hate relationship with the process. What did you love most about writing this book and what did you hate most writing, about writing this book? I hated the process of having to write the proposal for the book because writing the proposal for the book, trying to condense the ideas, took three times longer than writing the book. The book took a year to write. Uh, the proposals took years to write, right? Because Why is was, that? 
because I couldn't find a succinct way to say what I needed to say. Because as you know, having read the book, it covers a lot of topics, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to say, wrap that up in two or three pages, it's not that easy of a task um, to kind of convey. But I, I, so yeah, the the thinking of how I was going to weave these stories together about the world in this sort of matrix fashion would would just keep me up all the time. Like I, I wasn't, I wasn't able to think about anything without having the book in the back of my mind. And so it felt like a very heavy mental pregnancy for about four or five <laughs> years, right? Just having this weight in my head, mm -hmm. which now is totally not there. It's like a freaking, you could whistle right through it right now. Um, but the writing, I loved the writing and I loved the research. So once I got down to it, once I could finally sit down and write, that was a super fun process. And, um, yeah, and I, mostly I really love those moments when when you'd get stuck. I'd get stuck and I'd be like, God, what am I going to do? And and there was magic in writing the book. There was a bit of magic in the sense that it would be like, I'm going to get a, either you know have a shower or like sleep on it or whatever, and and it'll come to me. And it would. And that was something that would just freak me out a little bit, right? Like, because I'd be stuck on this thing and it'd be like this puzzle of of something I couldn't figure out, couldn't put together or something and then for it to, to find its way or I would open my computer at the right time and I'd see a tweet that had a research link to an article which was exactly what I needed. Oh, Those okay. little moments were always like, you know, uh, I don't know, they were powerful and magical and wondrous and, and something about the act of creation in itself, um, yeah, kind of astounds me. Do you feel like when you walk into a bookstore and see your book or when you get an email from someone saying, hey, I just read your book and I loved it, does it still feel weird for you to believe that it's even a real thing? Totally. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you've had that same thing. Yeah. Because you're like, you know, I, I remember the first time I held the book and it had a weight. And, you know, and I mean, these are ideas in your head. So they're floating ideas and they're weightless. And then you're holding this you know, it's not quite a pound, but I don't know how much it weighs, but it, you know, that's all I could say to my mom is it's, it's got a weight, right. you know, it's a physical thing that's actually manifested into the world. And, and, you know, it's an honor to have it on a bookshelf, um, that somebody would, would have a little piece of your mind, okay. um, in their house is, is kind of a beautiful thing. It's yeah. mind blowing, isn't it? What was, yeah. when you, when, when you were approaching the day when that would be a real thing and people would buy it and it would, it would exist and live in their house. What were you worried about? Oh, everything. Like, what was your biggest concern? Was it more like, what if I, what if I'm, what if I didn't do, you know, the proper research and I'm actually wrong on something or, or is it more like, oh my God, like, I don't know, what if, what if maybe people, I, I don't know, we, we always have these imposter syndrome moments. What, what was something that happened for you? Well, I think that, you know, um, a book that inspired this book was the book called The Gift, right? And it's really about, it's a book about how, how do you create in a world that um, re re requires um, an economy, right? Mm -hmm. When you, you just want to make something and you want other people to see it and receive it. And it's very much just like if you gave somebody a gift, you kind of want them to like it or love it mm -hmm. if you're lucky. But, you know, it's really shitty if you give somebody a gift and they hate <laughs> it, right? They want to send it back. You worked on for five years just toiling <laughs> yeah. away indoors when there's no pandemic. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're sitting in your freaking pajamas and like, you know, all your friends are outside at the, you know, on a patio having drinks. 
And then you give somebody a gift and they don't like it. Well, then that's a really, that's a painful thing. Oh yeah. But I think I've been, you know, knock on wood, um, just going to knock on it now. There you go. I've been very, I've been very fortunate because I just feel like people have received it. Uh, I think with the intention that it was written so far and, and there's no greater joy than when people, people have that wow factor for themselves and they feel like their own eyes have opened in some way, then it's a true, then the gift is returned back to me. Right. And I'm like, Oh, you know, this, it's a two way thing. Well, and I think it's important that I jump in here and say to those who are listening that this is not, you know, and I, I, I hate to say just cause anyone who's written a book, it's great. Like, I mean, it's an amazing accomplishment, but you know, there are certain books that do, um, hit the uh, hit the ground running a little faster than others and for good reason and Zaya's book has been uh, or was shortlisted to being one of considered one of the top five nonfiction books in the entire country of Canada okay so this is not just a pet project that she put out there and ten of her friends bought uh, this is a book that has been received uh, not just in the country of Canada but from all around the world and will for many many years to come so it is a huge, huge deal, and um, oh my gosh. it's like, yeah, no pressure, but uh, you're going to have to live up to this. <laughs> oh my God, really? Why? Well, I don't. Yeah. I guess. I guess. Uh, on, and that's always the big question, right? Everyone always thinks, well, now that you've written a book, what's your next project that you're going to do that's going to uh, wow the world? And do you feel the pressure to come up with something that's whether it's a book or a TV show or a cartoon? Like, is there anything that do you feel that pressure now to do something else that's great? Well, there's, there's definitely, there's been a lot of interest in the book and turning it into another format. So that's in potentially in the works right now. I don't, you know, like, I mean, you never know what's really going to happen, especially in the world of a pandemic, right? Like that's mm-hmm. sort of changed, uh, that's changed the reality of, of, of certainly TV series production quite a lot for the next few years. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a different thing. Um, you know, I mean, at heart, you've always known as a friend that that I'm an activist. So I think that I'm always thinking in terms of the revolution yeah. and what's next, and um, and really looking at this moment. Um, I need to, I need to, like with everything, right? You can't just. Um, there's some people, there's some writers out there that are just so prolific, and everything that happens, you know, like a, a week later, they have an article on it and they've digested. I'm not that kind of thinker. Like I'm going to sit here and I'm going to absorb this, like you know, through osmosis, mm-hmm. and sit with what's happening. And really, once I've sort of crystallized an idea or a perception that I think is worthwhile sharing, that's when I'll share it. But I'm not. You know, I mean, especially with what's happening with the pandemic, being a science broadcaster, you know, I've even refrained from getting involved with that because for the first time, even though my very first um, television uh, segment for Channel News Asia was in 2003 during the SARS epidemic, right? That's how I got my start in in science broadcasting. Interesting. Um, I didn't want to do it right now because you know what? There's a lot of life and death issues. And I really feel like the people that should be sort of leveraged their voices sort of champion right now are the epidemiologists and the virologists and the true experts. There's too much misinformation and, uh, and it's coming out. Sometimes it's accurate and then it's inaccurate. I really feel like those are the people that need to have the stage right now. The people who've done that work and that research Um, you know, as people have been saying though, there are no COVID-19 experts. This is brand new to everybody. Nobody's ever come across this before. So for me, I'm, I'm, 
finding myself just like the book, you know, the book is about politics and it's about science. I'm more interested in the sort of the blend of those two things, not just the science, but the political and social ramifications for how this moment can change the world. And in order to digest it and to create something um, or say something about it, I feel like I need to know more about it. I don't want to be reactionary and, and, you know, write 16 articles just for the sake of having my name or face out there. That's just not necessary to me right now. So we, we keep hearing about uh, the aftermath of uh, science uh, budgets being cut uh, before this whole pandemic hit, and uh, especially in places like the United States, but it's been happening around the world. You're hearing these stories about things that uh, should have been having the funding that and had they had the funding, we may have been in a much better situation right now. Do you have hope that moving forward, is this shake up enough to really create a better blend between science and politics than it used to be in the past? Only if we have better leadership, right? Like you're seeing the places like England and the United States are doing terribly because those are the two areas where they didn't listen to science. And that's because they had terrible leadership, right? Mm -hmm. Boris Johnson and Donald Trump. They didn't want to listen to the scientists. And then they ended up, um, you know, they're in a situation with tremendous number of unnecessary and preventable deaths because of it. So until we can change the political configuration of who's in power, that's gonna, that's what's going to dictate um, how much people listen to science and scientists. Right. They're very regressive. And fortunately, in Canada, we're in a much, much better place. When you look at the U.S., and this is going to be a totally left-field question, and, and I don't even know if I should go there, but I'm going to go there because I've just said that, and the listeners would be upset <laughs> if I didn't. But I'll try not to make us go there for long, but I do want to get your opinion on this. And because it's, it's something that I think about a lot, and that is the way that in the U.S. especially, but in other parts of the world, um, the way that politicians placate uh, religious uh People and, 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 and I say this as an individual who is uh, an atheist, but yet uh, would fight for people's right to believe in any religion they want and to believe in any God they want. So I, I, I put that out there before asking the question, but do you think that on some level um, a politician's history, especially in the U.S., of making sure that they get that religious vote, especially the Christian vote, has caused them to, I guess— put themselves into this disadvantaged situation um, because of people who, well, from my perspective, are, are believing in what I would consider a fairy tale. Um, and yet we still have uh, presidents in the United States who say, you know, God bless America or it's on their dollar bill. Um, do you feel like, is this the time that maybe we as a, a species need to really just uh, relook at the role that religion has played and maybe is this the time that we get a chance to be a little bit I don't know maybe angry and say guys like believe in whatever you want to believe but you cannot be influencing politicians in the way that they spend tax dollars because there are a lot of people that don't believe in what you believe who are being hurt because of that fairy tale that you believe in and I, I, I say this is I don't I don't know I think that you might share similar religious views to myself, but I can't be sure. But, you know, what are your thoughts when it comes to that? Or is that just too, too left field? No, I mean, I think, I think the number one thing that I think is, and I, I have no problem with religious freedom whatsoever, is, however, that um, churches, as an example, or religious institutions um, 
they should be taxed. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? I don't understand how there's like all this money going to all these institutions that shut their doors and aren't actually doing all that stuff of helping people. Not everybody, but certainly, you know, you look at those big mega churches in the States and, you know, whenever there's a flood, they just shut their doors and take off on their private jets. Like that's mm-hmm. an insane situation to me that is just counter to what they're preaching. Right. Yeah. So I think taxing, taxing churches should be absolutely fine. You know, there's a tremendous amount of money that goes into these institutions. And, uh, and it's the same with corporations, right? Like these, these are institutions with tremendous influence and yet need to, to really be able to show proof is in the pudding of giving back to the public for the public good. So if you're going to say that you're there to help the public, then help the public. And this is one of those moments, you know, where people have been ragging on socialism. You don't hear it so much now that every capitalist relies on socialism a little bit more than they ever did, right? And (laughs) those aspects of the state. But um, I've always thought that taxes should not even be called taxes. They should be called community funds. You know, what we're giving is we're giving our a certain share of what we make so that it can be shared for community funds, for roads, for schools, for education, for health care. And taxes is a bad word. And we need to move away from from that. Right. And that way of thinking, I think most people would be very willing to give to community funds. That's a great way of looking at that. I love that in the sense that we all uh, reframe the way that we see our taxes and realize that we're all part of. Um, creating a better community for ourselves. In fact, that's something that I'm curious to see what uh, does happen with this pandemic as to how communities start um, really mobilizing themselves and empowering themselves to realize that they can, in fact, make decisions on their own. And I know this is happening in certain parts of the world where they're even uh, beginning to play around with this idea and they're testing it a little bit where they're letting communities um, really come together through technology and make decisions on very simple things like whether or not uh, a particular green patch could use a playground or whether or not a certain road within that community could use uh, the potholes being filled. And yet it's just uh, an experiment. But if it works, I've always been fascinated by the idea of people just kind of if, if there's somehow you could actually allocate those community funds to the different communities and let them actually make their own decisions. It's kind of like what's happening with a friend of mine, Jesse Hirsch. I'm not sure if you've ever had a chance to to meet Jesse, but you know he's a, a futurist and an individual who's uh, had quite a, a, a long time that he spent on CBC. And um, Jesse and I were uh, talking recently about, and he's been writing a lot about this, about how people in rural communities are really taking their deplorable Wi-Fi access into their own hands because companies like Rogers and and Bell, they just don't see that as a profitable place to invest their money. And I I see their perspective. However, it's also uh, just plain old wrong to not be giving people who are considered, you know, farmers, those who are living in rural areas, the same kinds of speed of access that uh, people in the cities have. And so you're now beginning to see a farmer who is literally just running his own fiber optic cable from his um, his farm and, and, and sharing it for free with all of his neighbors. And it's fascinating to see how communities are now coming together to really take um, power back on some level and, and take matters into their own hands. 
Yeah, and I, I think that that may actually be one of the big shifts if we're lucky coming out of coming out of COVID. You know, one of the big moments that we've seen is what's called community aid, and you know, people working to help the elderly in their neighborhoods, helping people get groceries, really coming together in a new way. You know, we've been living in a very isolated world in our in our own bubbles for a long period of time, and I think we're going to want to reach out to others in very different ways. Because um, we know that we need each other now, you know. Um, right. I think we thought we didn't for a long period of time. I think that we thought that we would be fine with video games and the internet. I think that um, a lot of people just want to get together and have a nice drink together and have a hug after all of this <laughs> is over, and you know, have a real appreciation for the for the communities that we form. So I think that there's some great possibilities for us coming out of this. It's a dark time, but of course, you know, not to be cheesy, but there's 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 quite a Nice bit of light coming through my window right now. Oh, <laughs> that's light nice. coming out ahead. That's nice. Well, listen, you know what? I think that's probably a good spot to end this conversation on, on a good positive note and the fact that uh, heaven is currently beaming, beaming you up. Uh, for those who are religious, that is the way you can interpret that if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know what, uh, Zaya, this has been such a great conversation. I really... Uh, I love the way that you think, and I love that uh, you've got such a deep curiosity about uh, planet Earth, and it's always rooted in wanting to make the world a better place. What are you most curious about now as you move into the future? What am I most curious about now? I think really it's about how we're going to take this moment, this interregnum, um, this pivotal shifting moment that we're in right now and how we're going to transform it. I think you know that um, I have a philosophy and that is that I'm not a doom monger. I'm not a big believer in doom, but I'm a big believer in the way we can begin to bloom instead. So I think that this is a moment when we can reshift and reshift our thinking. And if we know how to think in a big, beautiful, bold, naked way, naked compared to you know the ways of the illusions and the bubbles uh, that we've been living in so far, if we can begin to see clearly, we we have a chance for a better path ahead. I love that. I think that's a great place to end. So, folks, if you are listening to this right now, I am not one to go out there and plug a whole bunch of things. Uh, and if I do, it means I believe in it. And I can tell you right now that if you read the reality bubble, you will be a changed person. You will see the world through new eyes and it will make you smarter and it will make you more empathetic and it will really cause you to, I think, become more involved in the day-to-day -day life that you live and wanting to do something uh, positive for planet Earth. And so, Zaya, for those who do want to get your book, where is the best place to go? Is it all, in all I guess it's probably in all the different areas where people buy books. Yeah, I think go to your independent bookshop. But um, I've got a link. If you go to my Twitter feed, it is at Zaya Tong, which is Z for zebra, I-Y-A-T-O-N-G. And uh, I've got a link there to uh, independent bookshops where you can pick it up. I recommend that because I think right now we need to all support our local independent community bookshops and, you know, really walk the talk. Look at you. Even when you're plugging your book, you're making a difference. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, I, I, I want you to know that uh, somewhere in there, I'm going to finally find something that's just not pretty about Zaya. She's, she's, she's basically a perfect person in, in my eyes, but one of these days, 
I'm going to find out that she puts her shoes on the wrong feet sometimes. Um, <laughs> Zaya, you're a wonderful person. You are someone that uh, the world needs more people like you. And I got to say that uh, it's always a fun conversation with you. And I miss you tons. And I hope that we get a chance to speak to each other more in the future. But until then, happy hand washing to you. Thank you. And uh, the feeling is very mutual. I'm so grateful for your friendship. And I will talk to you not on a podcast soon. Oh, you're the best. Okay, speak to you soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Stuart Knight Show. We hope you've enjoyed this powerful conversation. People are fascinating, and so are you. And the right questions will prove it. We'll prove it.